0: We are continuing through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3 is where we're picking it up this morning. We're continuing to look at the message of John the Baptist, the life of John the Baptist, as he is trying to speak to the nation of Israel. He's trying to get them prepared for the coming of the Messiah. The coming of Jesus is going to be so transformational is going to be so radically different than anything that they have really experienced before that God feels it necessary to actually send someone to prepare them to hear Jesus. That's John's job. John is going to show up and try to kind of get people to move forward far enough that when Jesus gets there, it's not a total disaster. Let's at least get some people on the right page here so that when Jesus arrives... Someone's ready to hear what he has to say. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John is going to reply that he's not. So what's happening is that John arrives on the scene. People are listening. He's preached north and south of the Jordan River. He's gone up and down the river. He's now at the river. People are coming from all over the country side of, of Israel they're coming sending some folks from Judea from Jerusalem scribes Pharisees some of the Sadducees they're here to kind of stand back and watch and see what John is doing none of them are really getting baptized to the leadership the people though are the people are coming down and the people are wondering is this the long way to Messiah we're wondering in our hearts it's we know that God is going to send someone to rescue us. Someone's going to deliver us. Someone's going to arrive. And things are going to be completely different than they are now. I wonder if it's John. Is John this guy? And what's really interesting, and the first thing I think we should observe in this passage, is that when God begins to work in people's lives, ours included, the initial thing is we don't really know what's going on. I mean we kind of do. We kind of know God is at work and we want God at work and we're trying to as it were cooperate with what God is doing but the fact is it can be difficult to know exactly what it is God is doing. They know that there is a Messiah coming. They know that John has something to do with the Messiah and now they're wondering if maybe he's the Messiah but of course that's wrong. He's not. He's not the Messiah. And so this entire exchange that we're about to go through here is is John more or less trying to help people put together the true story of what God is doing. A a momentum builds, an expectation. God is going to be doing something. And so God tends to work in unexpected ways. God tends to work when we, we, we think we know what God is doing, but kind of find out God is actually doing something else. John is the first prophet. In 400 years to actually carry out a prophetic ministry and so people are listening to him but what he stands up and says is not what they think his message is not what they expected him to say if you're Jewish and you're in the first century and you think the Messiah is going to show up well he's going to be a great political leader he's going to somehow or another, raise up this army and we're going to overthrow the Romans and we're going to finally be an independent nation. And, and we don't know exactly how that's all going to come together, but clearly that's what's going to happen. And somehow, well, here's John is out here in the wilderness and um, okay, here we are. Let's get at this. Um, John stands up and says, no, what you actually need to do is repent of your sin. When did that become part of the, when, wait, when did that, We're waiting for a political victory here. When do we have to repent of our sin? What kind of a message is that? What are you doing preaching that to us? I don't don't know. We don't want to repent. We just want the Messiah to show up so we can sit on thrones and rule the world. Repentance? That, that, That doesn't really fit into the whole. So people are confused about exactly what they're supposed to. John's not. John knows exactly what he's talking about. But the message is not always what we expect. What's happening here is we are moving from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. John is the last Old Covenant prophet. And so he is preparing for the New Covenant. That's his job. His job is to let everyone know that everything is about to change. Everything is about to be different than it's been up to this point and as a nation, Israel needs to be prepared for that. As a group of people, they need to start thinking carefully, yes, the Messiah is going to arrive, but he's not going to do what you all think he's going to do. You all think he's going to arrive, and it's just going to be rainbows and roses, and it's just going to be wonderful. Uh, Not so much. There is a problem in the nation, and we, of course, having read the whole Gospels, we, and we're going to watch Jesus when he does show up. One of the first things he's going to do is he's going to go to the temple complex and he's going to drive out the money changers. He's going to make a whip and drive them all out and say, you've taken my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus is going to direct his most harsh words towards the religious leaders who are in charge of the nation who, by the way, are either coming or at least have sent representatives to John and to John's baptism, that's their reaction. None of them are getting baptized. They're all just standing back and kind of watching this like, yeah, we don't really know who this guy is, but we're not going down there. We are not going to let John determine who the sinners in this nation are and who they aren't. Because we think if we let him, he might actually say we're sinners. In fact, he's already called us a bunch of snakes and vipers. So that kind of puts him on the wrong side. So we're not going to get down there and get baptized. And if he's going to anoint some messianic figure, we're not for that either. That's where the nation is. Now, there are people listening, the common people. They they are looking forward to John or whoever being the Messiah. Not the religious leaders. As far as they're concerned, they speak for God. And they don't know who John is. They don't know who this upstart is. And they're not going to submit to him or submit to what he's doing. The people are waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come to rescue them. Here's the thing, though. When the Messiah comes to rescue them, one of the things he's going to rescue them from is oppression. And one of the major people that's oppressing them are the Roman religious leaders. So I think the people kind of intuitively know that when our Messiah shows up, he's going to actually rescue us from our own corrupt leaders. I think the corrupt leaders know it too. That's why they're not embracing the baptism of John. They got a good deal going here. They're making a lot of money off the temple complex between the money changing and the selling of the lambs and it's lining their pockets quite well. They have no desire to upend this order and to enter into some kind of new covenant with God. But John's message is clear. Verse 16, John says this. John answers them, are you you the Christ? We're waiting to see if maybe you're the Christ. He's like, let me explain to you. Me? I'm just baptizing you with water. That's all. You come down here. We're going through this, this ceremony. We're going through this rite in which I put you in the water and bring you back up, and it's cleansing outwardly your flesh. I mean, maybe you went in dirty and you come out, you know, a little cleaner anyway, get some water on you. But that's not really making you a new person. In order to be a truly new person, you need a different kind of baptism. You need a baptism inside. So he says, I, I baptize you with water, but the one was coming, this one that you're looking forward to, this one is so much mightier than I am. His ministry is so beyond mine. His message so exceeds my message. I'm not fit to untie the the shoelaces on his sandals. Me, I baptize you with water. Him, he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is this great prophet. People looking at him like you were the you were you're this great guy. You finally we have the very voice of God in our midst. God has sent us a prophet. This is fantastic. And John is like, look, don't, don't, no, don't, don't make any big deal about me. Let me tell you, y'all think I'm a prophet? You think I'm somebody? The guy who's coming after me. The lowest job of the lowest slave was to take people's shoes off. Not to get too much information here, but you can let your imagination work. Uh, Everybody walked around on these dirt roads, uh, dusty roads. People walked around on them, and the animals walked around on them, and there was mud, and you know, your feet were really, this really wasn't good. And so when you came into someone's house, one of the first things you really needed to do was get your shoes off, get your sandals off your feet, and then get your feet washed. So you're you, know, you can walk around the house here. The job of the person that it fell to, to take your shoes off for you and to wash your feet, is like the lowest of the lowest. John says, you think my ministry is something? Let me tell you, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoes. I, I'm not worthy to do the most menial job, the lowest of below job. I'm, I'm not even worthy to do that. This guy is so much greater than I am. His message is so much greater than mine. Me, I cleanse you with water. Sure, come on down to the Jordan River. We'll dunk you in and stand you up and, and you'll be a little cleaner, but the one who's coming after me, he is going to baptize you, cleanse you, transform you by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a, this is a whole nother level of repentance, of transformation, of change. Oh, and by the way, if you won't go with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, then he's going to bring the fire. And he'll expound on that in just a minute. They should have been prepared for this. This this should not have come as a big surprise. There were passages in the Old Testament. I'll just read you a couple of them. Ezekiel, he speaks about it twice. In Ezekiel 36, he says, God says this, I will put my spirit within you. And that will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God says that the time is going to come. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant when, which the spirit of God and you will. No one will need to say to his neighbor anymore, know the Lord. Everyone will know the Lord. I mean, the Spirit of God is going to come into us. So the arrival of the Spirit of God as a message to the nation, they should have said, wow, it's about time. Can you believe it? God is fulfilling his word and his ministry. I can hardly wait to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Where's the Messiah? Bring him on. As you can imagine, just like it is today when you try to preach the gospel to people. Um, yeah, there's some folks who look forward to that. Most folks, and Israel was not really any different. Most folks did not come down and get the baptism of John. Some, some, not most. There was no national repentance here. This was not the whole nation coming down and standing before John like we can read about in a number of places in the Old Testament, a number of kings, a, a Ezra, Nehemiah, when Ezra, Nehemiah, they, they, they stand up and they read the, the law, everyone left in the nation gathers together and there is weeping and crying and they're looking at Ezra and they're saying what does God want us to do whatever it is we will do it we are here to repent and sackcloth and ashes that doesn't happen with John that that's not the response to John yet there's some folks who come there's some but it's not the whole nation and they're not all down there um the Messiah is coming that sounds good he's going to give us deliverance from the Romans right I mean Wow. Interestingly, much like today, you read the passages you like and you see in them what you want to see. And those are the passages. Yeah, I just forget those. Just kind of ignore those. And so we end up kind of seeing what we want to see. Well, well they saw a Messiah who was going to give them political deliverance. John is going to preach to them another Messiah the actual Messiah, the one who's really going to show up. And they are just completely unprepared for this. He says to them, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, those who wish to be transformed, and with fire. What fire? Well, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is speaking to an agricultural community. They knew how this all went. For us, we just kind of go to the store and buy bread. Whole wheat bread, if you, you know, really want to go with that. Whole wheat bread. Wow, I wonder how they get this stuff. No idea. I don't know, somehow. But not in that society. In that society, if you wanted whole wheat bread, you had to get a field over here and you had to actually plant wheat in it. And you had to make sure it grew. Water it once in a while. Maybe if you had fertilizer, if you knew what that was, put something there on it. And when it finally springs up and gets to the place where it's ready, you need to get in there and cut it down. And there's no machine here. that's you. You need to get a You need to go out there. You need to slice the stuff down and put it in bundles and get it in a cart and get it to the place where you're, where you're actually going to process it. Usually... You would take the stuff, you, you'd get it up on a, on a hill, you cut the wheat off the top, and you would leave the other stuff, and you would get it up there, and you would thresh it. That's, but all threshing is, is you basically you, know, you whack on the wheat so that the seeds will fall out of it. Okay, so now you've got the little wheat seeds. Not, not ready to eat it yet. This is what you have. You have this big pile of this stuff in your threshing floor, usually on a hilltop, somewhere where there's a breeze, somewhere where a breeze blows consistently. You could use people standing there with big fans if you want, but hilltop is a little better. And then you get a winnowing fork, which is what John is referring to here. And you stick your fork in the pile of the wheat and you toss it straight up. The wheat is pretty heavy. The chaff is really light. So the wheat goes up, the breeze blows, and the chaff all lands over here. So as you throw this stuff up, and you, by the time you're done, in theory, and, you know, and in reality, if you do it right, you'll end up with a big pile of wheat right here, and you'll end up with a big pile of chaff over there. Now, chaff, as those things go, when the wheat is growing, it's, it's essential. It's good stuff. I mean, it does its job. It protects the seeds. It's kind of like the old covenant. It served its purpose. It, it did what it was supposed to do. It got the wheat to the place where we can now thresh it. But once we've used the winnowing fork and now we've got all this chaff sitting down over here, there's only one thing to do with that stuff because it's useless. you light it on fire. You burn it. I don't know, blowing around. You want to get rid of it. But the wheat, you protect that, get it in the barn, get it somewhere where the insects and animals can't get it. This was a common thing and everyone knew how this went. You throw it up, the breeze blows, it, the wheat comes back down. John says to them when the Messiah shows up, he is going to sift the nation. He's going to sift us. His winnowing wing fork is in his hand. And to those who listen to John, to those who repent, to those who owe up to their sinfulness, well, they're like the wheat and they're going to, they're going to drop back down. The chaff... You guys, you guys who won't listen, you guys who won't make the transition from the old covenant to the new, you people who won't hear the message, who won't respond positively to the Messiah, you're going to be the chaff and you're going to get, you're going to get blown away. You're just going to, the breeze is just going to blow you over there. And you are going to be consumed with unquenchable fire. So the baptism of John, by the way, is not the baptism we do. Uh, we baptize people. We don't, we don't do the baptism of John. We don't, we don't, if, you, if you want to get baptized, then we would love to baptize you. Uh, it's not John's baptism. John's baptism was to the coming kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We baptize for a completely different reason. The kingdom has already, the king has already arrived. Jesus has come. We baptize now for the Messiah who has arrived, not for the Messiah who is coming. And we don't baptize in the name of John or in whatever name it was he baptized in. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a different baptism than the baptism of John, although the, you know, the, the procedure is the same. We put you in the water and put you down and bring you up. But it's a different, we baptize to the gospel. We are here to baptize people, to observe all things which Jesus has commanded them. By the, as John is down there baptizing, Jesus hasn't even arrived on the scene yet. You get baptized to the arrival. And so, with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. He gets up and says, you've got to be holy. You've got to repent. You've got to be, you've got to be prepared. You've got to knock off the tops of the hills and fill in the valleys and you've got to take the crooked ways and make them straight. The Messiah is coming and we want to be prepared and we want him, we want him to come and when he comes into our lives, it's got to be a straight shot to our hearts. That's why the valleys are filled and the mountains are cut down and, and everyone's way is made straight. You want the Messiah to show up and go straight into your heart. Prepare, be ready. Now, it's positive. There's a great positive to that. If we will repent, this marvelous news is coming. The Messiah is going to show up. He's going to gather his wheat. He's going to put you in the barn. If you repent, you'll be the part of the wheat of God. Wow. But the chaff. John presents this balanced message. He doesn't just get up and say it's all sunshine and rainbows and lollipops. He gets up and says, oh, and by the way, there is the potential for this unquenchable fire that may very well consume you. He doesn't leave well enough alone. We go on to the next passage here, verse 19. Herod, the tetriarch, was reprimanded by John because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the other wicked things which Herod had done. John says, look, if we want national blessing, if we want the Messiah to show up and to bless us, we need national repentance. And oh, by the way, that includes our leaders. And the tetrarch of this area is Herod, and he's got a serious problem now. Herod Antipas, by the way, there's two Herods. Uh, I, I'll give you a little. I give you a little, little history here. Herod the Great. We're, we're familiar with Herod the Great because he's the guy that was the Herod when Jesus was born. Remember the whole deal there where he kills all the little kids two years old and under in Bethlehem? That's Herod the Great. He had ten wives. Lots of kids. A horrifically wicked guy. He was an Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau. And you know how Jacob and Esau didn't get along so well. Well, he was a direct descendant of Esau, an Idumean. He married, one of his wives was a Samaritan. I mean, as if being an Idumean wasn't bad enough, he married a Samaritan, one of the ten wives. And they had a son, and that son is this Herod. So other than the birth accounts, other than the birth of Jesus at the beginning there, all the other Herods that you read about in the the Gospels, you know, the Herod that's there at the trial of Jesus, this Herod with John, the Herod in Acts, that is this Herod, not Herod the Great. It's his son. And so Herod now, the one we're looking at, Herod Antipas, which is the only Herod I'm going to be talking about from here on in, right? Don't get him confused with Herod the Great. This Herod... He's now ruling over a third of Israel. There's, you know, there's three tetriarchs, and he's one of them. And so he's ruling, and he is not only an Indian, he's also a Samaritan. I mean, you can imagine that the Jews really didn't like this guy. They were very unhappy that the Romans put him in charge of their nation. You would think John would just, okay, John, you know, really, you've got to be quiet here. go after this guy who knows what might happen to you Mm, doesn't bother John at all John is going to stand up and preach the truth now what exactly is the deal here with Herod and Herodias which is the woman it's like a modern soap opera it's really there's a number actually of secular sources to to over this here here's the deal so Herod is in charge of this third of Israel, he's married to this woman who is the daughter of a king of an adjacent territory, a little to the southwest, southeast. Uh, Right next to his territory is this king of the southeast, and he's married to his daughter. They're doing whatever it is they're doing, and then Herod decides to take his wife and to go to Rome because Herod is a Roman official, he's a tetriarch, and he goes to Rome, it doesn't really say why, but he goes to Rome. On the way to Rome, he stops to visit his brother Philip. Not, by the way, just in case you're looking, there's a Philip at the beginning of this chapter 3, not that guy, he's a different guy. This is just his brother Philip. He gets his eye on Philip's wife. And the two of them kind of get to making eyes with one another. And the next thing you know, he's willing to leave his wife and take her. She's willing to go with him since the guy she's married to is like a nobody. And he's a tetrarch after all. But her, she's got one condition. You need to divorce the wife you've got. You need to, you need to really, you know, not just, you, you need to actually officially divorce her. And then I'll come with you. It's like, well, okay. So. He divorces the wife of the king, right? This king of the next door territory over there. He divorces her. Just, she's, she's a princess, right? I mean, he divorces the princess and takes Herodias. And they go to Rome and they do whatever they do and they, they, they come back. And so this is now what John is talking about. John is like, hey, you can't, you can't just divorce your wife and marry your brother's wife. This is his brother's wife. This is a sister lies marrying here that 's wrong. you can 't do that. That's absolutely wrong now, when you think about the fact, we, we tend to see if we don't, if we don 't think about it, we tend to see Roman government officials, particularly when we look historically and in writing. I mean you kind of perceive them like these solid there they are they 're the tetriarch they 've been the tetriarch they 're kind of in your mind will forever be the Tetriarch. But the fact is that they are in very precarious positions. And often their life is on the line. You don't rule well for the Romans, who knows what they'll do to you. And so there's all kinds of intrigue and backstabbing and there's all kinds of things going on. Well, the moment presents itself and the princess's father goes to war with Herod and wins. He actually beats it. The only reason that he doesn't kill Herod is the Romans step in and go, eh, nope, sorry the whole Roman government comes, brings to bear, they're like, Herod's our guy. We know, we know the whole daughter thing. There. Now, sorry. So they intervene and they actually rescue Herod from this guy, although Herod loses the war. So Herod is a lousy father, a lousy husband, a lousy warrior, a lousy ruler. This guy, is he's, he's really on the bad side of things. And if you're curious, well, and on top of all that, He's going to arrest John, and y'all know that story, right? This woman, Herodias, that he's married, she's got a daughter from her previous marriage. She dances for Herod, and he, like an idiot, offers her whatever she wants. And of course, what she wants is the head of John the Baptist. And he's too embarrassed to actually stand up for what's right. I mean, no one they really hated this guy, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's a moral coward, he's an ethical coward, he's a military coward. And I mean, this, this guy is just, every way you can measure is, what's is he doing in charge of anything? Anyway, if you're curious, the end of this story, Herodias, oh, oh, and to top it all off, Herodias is actually Herod's niece, Herodias is another brother. Remember Herod the Great? He had 10 wives and all them kids. Well, Herod's one of them. He had a brother who had a daughter. That's Herodias. So he's marrying his own niece, which is, I told you, it's like a soap opera, right? It's just like, you've got to be kidding me. All right. So what happens is, of course, this guy has more kids than just Herodias. Herodias also has a brother, Agrippa. You probably heard the name Agrippa, right? Agrippa won. Remember, Agrippa becomes a king. We see him in Acts, King Agrippa. Herodias looks at Herod and says, hey, my brother is not going to beat out me. Now, if he can be a king, you can be a king. And of course, the guy that made Agrippa king was a new emperor. And so this new emperor who had made Agrippa a king, she says, you need to, you need to go talk to him. And, and uh, this is Caliglia. Caliglia is this new king. You, you need to go talk to him and you need to become a king too. Because I'm not having my brother have a better title than I do. So the two of them pack up, head to Rome. On their way to Rome, Philip informs Caliglia that Herod is headed out there not for good reasons you're a new emperor, you really need to keep an eye on this guy, he's actually coming there to subvert who you are, and he's got bigger ambitions than he should have. So when he shows up, they arrest him, and Herodias, and ship them off to a little town in the middle of what is now France, and they're never heard from again. Kind of what they deserve. Uh, that's who John is standing up and saying, it's, it's not lawful for you to have her as your wife, she's your niece, plus you were married, plus you've left your wife, you, you've divorced your wife, and you're marrying her, and this is all just wrong. It's all wrong. And you're thinking, John, don't you understand that the nation is a powder keg they're already waiting for some Messiah to show up. You're already inflaming nationalistic ambitions. All kinds of people are wondering if you're the Messiah. And this guy, I mean, his, his rule on, on the nation is already tenuous. I mean, people already hate this guy. Don't, I mean, they despise him. Not to mention that he built his capital in Tiberias on top of a Jewish cemetery. I mean, come on. You're going to spark a rebellion. You just shut up. No. No, I'm not going to shut up. This is wrong. And John stands up and boldly declares, what's wrong? My name, Herod, you, the tetriarch. What you're doing is wrong. And I'm going to declare it to the whole nation. Herod, back to verse 20, added also to all these other insanely immoral and unethical and unrighteous things, added to them all this. He locked John up in prison okay, can't have this guy sitting around accusing me with the nation as a powder keg. And uh, now, I'm going to have to lock him up. And so that's what Herod does. John does not back down. John is not quiet. John speaks the truth. This is instructive. We need to speak the truth. And if we're thinking that somehow, well, we might get in trouble for speaking the truth, yeah, Uh uh-huh, yeah, that's how it goes. John is just one of a long, long list of people who stood up and spoke the truth and paid a price for it. We are in the midst of a war, in case you hadn't noticed. We, as Christians, have a particular worldview. We have a set of morality we turn to the word of God and we say, this is what God says. This is how God created us. We have a choice. We can either stand up and declare that we believe God says what God says or not. You say, well, you know, when John did it, I mean, after all, it was John, right? I mean, this is John the Baptist. This is a guy who grew up in the wilderness, right? I mean, he didn't have a wife and kids, and, you know, there were lots of guys who did have wife and kids. And the math we need to do is, where are you going to be 100 years from now? And what's going to matter? And what's going to matter is the 100 years from now. We really need to take the 100-year plan. We need to take the 100-year plan. And you need to think carefully, because you are going to stand before Jesus. Every one of us. And we are going to give an account. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go out and make trouble, right? I'm not suggesting that you stand up and declare some controversial thing that you know is, say, going to get you fired. But the fact is, when the moment comes and it is appropriate in your circle of people, um, you might want to say the truth. And you may very well pay a price for that but we need to make sure people believe we believe it this is one of the reasons why the bible is so believable the people who preached it paid the price john didn't change his message just because herod threw him in prison john didn't change his mind just because he suffered for the truth and so we can believe john He becomes a much more credible witness. He has a greater impact. That's what matters. Our children are watching. The people around us are watching. God is watching. John is a great example to us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the world it's going to be against your truth. It's difficult as you well know. We are tempted to not say anything. We are tempted to not speak the truth. And as it gets dimmer and darker and harder, may we have more grace and more boldness to lovingly, kindly, graciously speak the truth. Give us the wisdom to know how to do that, Lord, to serve you. Sometimes it's just going to be tough. Lord, may we look to you for strength. May we serve you with our whole hearts. May each of us search our hearts and make sure that we are faithful and loyal to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.